You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Amit Sharma, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. This is really fun because if people are familiar with Narvar, Narvar is a company that's been in the e-commerce space now for seven plus years, eight years, uh, building infrastructure for all kinds of brands. And if you're listening to this right after the holidays, you have most likely received a package in the mail, a gift from someone. You may have sent someone a gift that was somehow powered by Narvar and hopefully somehow powered by Lumi and I mean, is, is the CEO. Before we jump into some of the big news, I'd love for you to give your uh, description, uh, your holiday party <laughs> one-minute description of what Narvar is. How do you describe it? I think w- one minute, I'll say one sentence in a holiday party, I would say, you know, we help businesses to bring joys and smiles in on their consumers' lives. Um, so that's the very brief version of saying that. But the longer way I will describe is that, you know, we are a technology company and an infrastructure company we work with businesses and, and retailers and brands to really help them engage with their customers post-purchase. So that's the way we describe that. And what, what we mean by post-purchase is that once a shopper or a customer buys a product or a merchandise online, how do we really engage throughout that product that actually now is an order all the way for them to receiving that goods to their homes, we help businesses to uh, really enable those customer communications and engagement. And Narvar has been amazing at helping brands really tailor that experience and make it feel native to their company, their brand, the look and feel. Can you give a a sense of scale of who's using Narvar and, and how big it is today? Absolutely. So we have roughly... 1,200 brands and retailers who are using us uh, globally. And these companies are up-and-coming, amazing e-commerce brands like Figs or Glossier or Allbirds or or in really global organizations like Home Depot or Nike or Lululemon. And um, the way they engage um, not only here in North America, but in Europe or, uh, and as well as in APAC is really providing that personalized experience by that language or local communications via email or SMS or WhatsApp for all their purchases. And yeah, and, and I think everyone has somehow experienced Narva. Everyone who's listening to this has uh, received an email from a brand or jumped into a tracking link uh, to see what's the status of an order or uh, maybe return something over the past couple of years through Narvar's products that are, you know, a pretty key piece of infrastructure. Over the past year or so, um, Jesse and I have gotten, Jesse, my co-founder, and I have gotten to know you and the and the Narvar team. And just a couple of weeks ago, we made a, a big announcement that Lumi is joining Narvar. And this is really fun for a ton of reasons, but I think one of the things that we share in common is this focus on infrastructure and the building blocks that are really necessary for scaling e-commerce brands as well as really large ones and how they operate in in the 21st century, in the 2020s now. 
I, I can go into all of the reasons I'm excited about it, but I'm curious, why are you excited about Lumi joining Narvar? First of, you know, your and, and Jesse's passion and, and vision is truly infectious. And, and to, uh, to really thinking about what is in front of us and bringing the commerce uh, in a digital fashion in a much more enduring fashion, uh, both for businesses as well as for shoppers and, and, and customers. So that, that's in itself. It starts with people having those ambitious vision and, and, and solving some meaty problems that are in front of us. So that's one thing. But second, and, and as, as you touched upon, having those building blocks um, that are going to be more important uh, in the future of uh, digital and commerce and solving as you are solving for packaging and everything around the product, but which is important. And the way we saw similar to in Narvar's journey, and Lumi had, had and also identified uh, a problem. And the way we saw that problem for Narvar is that customer communication after purchase is often overlooked or underestimated, like how mm-hmm. you can actually really drive that in a meaningful fashion. And packaging is something similar. What uh, Lumi is doing is something often, honestly, companies have either overlooked or underinvested. And what you see is that it will continue to play a bigger and bigger role in commerce in the future. And seeing that underlying problem that you are seeing and the approach that you're taking to solving those problems was really exciting to us. And as we build this infrastructure and these tools for the future uh, was really something that appealed to us. And looking at the team, looking at the problem and the approach that you have taken, all those things check the box for us to say, how can we join forces and make something meaningful in this space? And infrastructure is one of those words that I think for the average person, they've heard more in the past 18 months than ever in their life. When stories like (laughs) the Suez Canal being blocked is like on the front page, things like supply chain. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this have some of their gifts back ordered or they've had to buy gift cards for their friends and family because some of the products that they were hoping to to give to their friends (laughs) haven't been able to make it through uh, this year. One of the things that I've been thinking about just over the past month as we've been announcing this acquisition was a blog post that I wrote about four years ago when we announced our Series A that was about our goal at Lumi of creating a scalable infrastructure. And I think the title was something like custom manufacturing infrastructure should be as scalable as the web. And I think a good example of what I meant by that actually happened right at the beginning of COVID when suddenly March 2020 hits here in the US and everyone has to download Zoom and figure out how to have conversations online. And Zoom went from, you know, being an enterprise product to something that every school, every parent, every team had to use. And their server infrastructure had to overnight scale in capacity to be able to meet the demand that had grown 300%. But when you think about the challenges that we're dealing with right now in terms of getting packages to people's homes and the entire infrastructure that is below that, 
we don't have that capability yet. We don't have the capability to scale the physical world in the same way that we can scale uh, the digital world. And I think that's that's one of the big connection points between Narvar and, and Lumi is how do we solve that both from the consumer perspective and from the brand perspective? Yeah, I mean, the, the two pieces. I mean, to answer your question about infrastructure, that word could be a little bit nebulous. And how do you really define, you know, some people may gravitate towards physical infrastructure versus a digital infrastructure. But from, from my perspective, lines are blurring between digital and physical. Let's, let's just say talk about e-commerce, online shopping. It's a digital shopping. Yes, we are on our laptop or phone or, or iPad placing orders and we can say, hey, this is an you know, online order. But in reality, for that online order to get completed, someone has to physically ship that product. So lines are blurring and it's completely intertwined when we say infrastructure, it's not the digital component of that as well as the physical component as well. And I think as you mentioned clearly in Zoom's case, yes, we are on our laptop, you know, digitally or virtually interacting, but it requires a physical hardware and infrastructure behind the scenes to make all that work. So same thing is in here. Yes, Narwar has been focused on that communication, digital communication. But after everything said and done, that is everything to do with the physical movements of goods from point A to point B, either shipping to customers' home or in, term, in, in, in case of returns, bringing those returns back from customers' home to, to merchants. So those things are very intertwined and interrelated. There's a phrase that uh, you've been using at Narvar and I'm not sure when it came about. Maybe you could tell the story of how the idea of improving the experience from pixel to package, where did that phrase come from? Yeah, I mean, we started to use that roughly three to four years ago. And the, the genesis of that was every experience has to be pixel perfect. So anytime we send a communication, every time we represent brands, as you mentioned, you know, to give uh, some uh, numbers, in terms of communication, whether they're emails or SMS or any form of communication or interactions, we power eight to 10 billion interactions every year. That's a lot of communications. Those are all have to be pixel perfect for all the brands that are using our platform because they're not getting that communication uh, with Narvar logo. They are getting communication through our brands who are using us. So that has to be pixel perfect when we represent those brands. Mm. So that's one part of the story. But in order to make that happen, Narwar has built a whole set of connections with various different couriers, carriers, logistics providers. There are over 500 of those connections that are in place that are real-time actually pulling information from these service providers, whether it is UPS or FedEx here in the US, all the way to DHL and DPD in Europe to all the various hundred plus postal companies all over the globe. And they are actually managing the physical movement of those packages and shipments and parcels. And so our responsibility is not only representing those brands pixel perfect, but also getting that real-time up-to-date information, package information from these 
couriers and logistics providers. So that's the reason we think about mm. as our technology solution has to work from pixel to package. And that idea of going back to the pixel part of it, of really what we're talking about is a B2B to C business model, which is one that for whatever reason, I think it's it's less talked about, but it's so powerful. Can you explain how you came to that business model and that approach into the market? What led you uh, down that path? I mean, obviously, we are not the first ones who are looking at B2B to C. If you look at some of the most sophisticated uh, technology companies that are actually enabling digit- digital commerce, they play in that role. And a few examples. Um, if you look at, you know, one case comes to mind like Shopify. Now, Shopify is servicing all the merchants. Uh, that is their B2B platform. But they also have a shop app that is clearly focused towards um, the consumers, the shoppers. So that's one place. Now, on the other hand, which, you know, you and I and others may be using post-pandemic even more so than before, if you look at Instacart and DoorDash, so they have uh, those apps that on one hand, the consumers are using, but that you can actually buy products through those apps. So on the other hand, they are working with all the grocery companies or quick service companies to getting food, which is their B2B part of it. So most of these companies, another example is if you look at buy now, pay later companies, whether it is Affirm or Klarna or Afterpay, you know, on one hand, they also communicate with consumers about their payments and, and the frequency and the timing of that. On the other hand, they enable that for all the uh, e-commerce companies as well. So what we have noticed and observed for companies to work and operate at scale in this you know, ecosystem, there are those two components. One is working with businesses and the other hand, working seamlessly uh, their solutions for end consumers as well. Before Narvar, you worked in operations and supply chain at Apple, at Walmart, or some things that you learned during those years that, that informed Narvar? Oh, absolutely. And uh, every experience prior to Narwar played a critical role uh, in building and, and scaling uh, given where we are. So you know, prior to starting uh, the company, I spent over a decade uh, at various different uh, retailers uh, and, and uh, um, brands. So you mentioned Walmart and Apple, two very different companies, um, <laughs> massive Fortune 1, Fortune 2 company. Um, you know, Walmart, I spent almost six years looking at both omni-channel e-commerce business, not only for online, but for stores and, and how those things come together, predominantly from supply chain operations and logistics side of it, because I was part of their uh, supply chain division. So goal there was, how do we enable the best experience when uh, people are buying uh, goods through walmart.com? And one of the things that uh, was changing back then. And this, by the way, when I was at Walmart was 2006. Mind you, this was pre-iPhone. Uh, you know, we can't remember our lives before mm-hmm. phones, uh, iPhones specifically. So this is pre-iPhone. And by the way, pre-Amazon Prime, different era altogether. So 
all the companies back then were looking at supply chain as a cost center in terms of you know shipping or returns would uh, would be very expensive it, it it is still very expensive but how do we streamline supply chain operations from the cost perspective but as consumers were switching more towards mobile and and clean experiences amazon prime setting the stage for supply chain is not only for cost but for convenience for experience those two things combined also force companies like walmart to really invest in enabling supply chain for consumer experience as well so a lot that you know people who are in these functions uh, logistics and operations have to not only think about cost effective way of moving package from point a to point b but how do we now think about the end consumer experience so that was really important and critical for me to understand that part of it now apple apple being apple you know whether you go to their stores or whether you are interacting online or with the various different channels they have they want to make sure the consumer experience is as important as the product experience so what that means is whether you are buying online picking up in store whether you are uh, getting your products delivered to your home how do you set expectations whether you're going to buy today whether it's going to get delivered in two days or three days are you going to get one package with all your items or are you going to get two packages because you ordered three items and they're coming in two shipments how do you communicate that you know what is the way you can get those proactive notifications so those are things that we were looking at it and what i realized as we were building these solutions and capabilities both for walmart and apple that this is not just a problem for literally fortune 1 and fortune 2 company but every e-commerce uh, brand or retailer now has to grapple with these hard and difficult questions in terms of not only manage operations and supply chain streamline cost but on top of it provide convenient consumer experiences so for me putting all that together at back then 2011 12 i thought this could be a big enough problem that everyone needs to solve and may not be core competency for everyone to build in house so that was the thought behind and it resonated with me not only what i was seeing uh, from these companies perspective but i, I as a consumer um, that you know i'm getting all these emails and and notifications from um, merchants nudging me to buy something but once i buy the experience after buy prior to me receiving was mediocre at best and it felt like all that work is now left on me as a consumer so as a consumer also it resonated that you know we need to improve that experience and make it a little bit more engaging so bringing all that together led me to leave apple and start the company <laughs> and, and this was uh 2012 so the landscape in terms of uh what did tracking order tracking look like what did these notifications look like was nowhere near what the expectations have gotten to today and and consumer expectations are always leveling up and 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 increasing in terms of how fast 
people will receive their order, how much communication, how much visibility and transparency they have at, at, at every stage. How have expectations changed over the past eight or nine years from your perspective? Yeah, it has changed significantly uh, you know, in, in many ways. And the halo effect of how we la- live our life digitally also affects uh, our physical interaction um, as well. So, you know, if you look at, you know, if you want to get a ride share, whether it's Lyft or Uber, you know, if you don't see that mm. car or vehicle moving every 10 seconds, we are refreshing and figuring out what is happening. That the sense of, you know, um, in a instant gratification is also in a high, higher than ever. So all of that is getting to see the sense of progress is, is really important. Uh, and then if you see other aces as well, not just, you know, right share as an example, even, you know, streaming music, music and videos, right? So those things have also changed that we are looking at, you know, we don't expect anything to, anything to buffer. Uh, at any point. And those things actually now set the stage that any kind of communication that we expect has to be instant or, or real time. Come to the point that people do expect to get a notification by the time your package is delivered to your doorstep and they would like to see that mail person leaving and you getting a notification that, hey, Stefan, your package has been delivered. That's the expectation today, that instant notification, instant gratification. So it is. It, it continues to raise the bar. You mentioned at the beginning, Figs, Allbirds, companies like Warby Parker, they were some of the pioneers that started 10 years ago. And uh, now a lot of those have gone public just in the past year or two. Um, and they were kind of the, the early pioneers of the DTC model. When we started Lumi in 2015, that movement was just starting to spread out. And it was much easier when you were starting a brand at that time in the sense that there was a lot of open opportunity. There were a lot of products that hadn't come to the web yet. You know, Warby Parker, obviously, with glasses, Allbirds with shoes, Glossier with makeup products and, and, and health and beauty products. Like all these categories have found their different niches filled by different types of products. And now, five to 10 years later, especially through COVID, we have these brands who are not in the top <laughs> Fortune 1, Fortune 2 level, have the complexity of a supply chain growing and experiences like curbside pickup or dark stores or a, a much wider footprint of inventory across m- multiple continents is becoming something that those larger players in the DTC space, but even new entrants need to be able to learn really quickly and adopt really quickly to be able to satisfy that expectation. So there's something there about has the has the bar risen? How, how hard is it now to get started if you're brand new? And how do you think about achieving that competence quickly if you're a, a relatively young brand? The world is certainly um, very complex, um, the way you just describe. But on the other hand, it comes back to the first principles, like what exactly are we solving from from the consumer perspective? It comes down to two or three things, you know, convenience. And let's define what that convenience is. Uh, second is consistency. What that means is that every time I order something, I have that uh, consistency, which goes even deeper. Like I have that trust 
and the confidence with that brand that they will come and deliver that convenience you know, consistently with me. So defining those fundamentals of you know, from first principle perspective, are you solving for convenience? Do you have the trust and, and, and confidence to delivering the goods and services that you have promised me to service? And the things that you mentioned, not only that, and if there are some exceptions and I can you know, chat with them or I can pick up the phone and call with them, all those things come together uh, in terms of solving. So, you know, all the new offerings that, you know, you just mentioned, whether it is buy online, pick up in store, contactless in, in, in today's world or dark stores, you still have to go back and say, are we solving the underlying mm. um, consumer experiences and and even more more than that? So that that's how you see and prioritize in today's world, what are you going to do now? For the next generation company, uh, or a brand uh, who is poised to launch uh, their business online, you don't want to offer all those things on day one. And the reason for that is that the buying population is now big enough mm. by several magnitudes than you know just three years ago or five or ten years ago. That I think we are going to see that inflection point. If you're not seeing it already, you know, first all these companies were solving for the masses. But now the inflection point is that I don't have to solve for the masses. I just want to pick a niche and just solve for that. And that could be that, you know what, I'm going to just offer, you buy online and the only option is to pick up from these locations. I'm not going to even ship it to your home. And that may be enough for that niche customer group that may build a business for that brand. So we will see that thing oscillate back and forth in the next 5 to 10 to 20 years where you have to pick one or two key elements or attributes of customer experience and the brand proposition and to build the brand proposition around it. What we've seen at Lumi over the past couple of years has been really a, an explosion of new verticals that previously were primarily physical retail start to come online just out of necessity. Things like fresh foods, beverages, um, products that have a, a heavy kind of uh, return cycle products that have a lot of exchanges, products that are more bulky that would be harder to ship. You know, 10 years ago, people were buying certain categories of products that they felt comfortable buying online. Now, out of necessity, so many new products are are being brought online, but those products have slimmer margins. They have more complex operations uh, involved in bringing them online. Is that something that you've seen? And, and how did Narvar react to that change during the pandemic of being able to uh, meet brands where they needed to be to support the, these new logistical patterns or to enable some of the new companies that have come out during this time? No, for sure. No, you, you're right on that, especially in grocery uh, or these consumable goods that has just exploded in the last two plus years. And it's not just grocery, which is you know, fresh. You have frozen food. You have ambient food with a certain room temperature. You have to think about all those areas out of necessities. And that actually propelled to build that, uh, for companies to build that physical infrastructure that they can now operate at scale. Now, you know, there are other pieces involved that you mentioned from the unit economics perspective. If you look at, just products or merchandise you know in itself 
yes, you're right. I mean, grocery margins are, you know, low single digit, you know, razor thin margins, few percentage. However, just like anything else, um, you are seeing that if you take the product and bundle the convenience factor or the experience factor, you can actually make it work. And that's the reason you have companies who are charging delivery fees or additional tips or, or other ways, surcharges that you can actually combine all that. So it is not just the product, but product and service combined, you can make that economic model work. So that's just from the financial model and, and at scale, can you operate that? And there's always, now that you know things are working at scale, there's always that segment of customer who is willing to pay for that product plus experience uh, a premium uh, for that. And of course, there will be always value seeker. Uh, they, they always existed. They are shopping uh, for w- value, and and in some cases it may work, in some cases it may not work. And and uh, from uh, from now our perspective, uh, we have not dabbled significantly in the grocery area uh, for for multitude of reasons. I mean, this area, as you you mentioned. These are high frequency purchases. You know, you're buying certain goods every week or two weeks. And what we see in the market today, at least the service providers themselves, whether it is Instacart or, you know, Uber and DoorDash, from the true uh, communication perspective, which is where, you know, we started our business, they do a decent job of communicating with the end consumer. and, And we didn't see a significant value that we can add on top of it. On the other side of our business, which is the key part of our business, is returns and exchanges. And what happens in groceries, both fresh, frozen, and ambient, that typically that's a substitution model. You don't do, in a most of the cases, you don't return something. If item is not available, it's substituted if consumer allow or, or opt into that. So, you know, given where we are, you know, we continue to focus on general merchandise versus consumables or, or quick service or some of these grocery deliveries. Is there anything else that you saw happening in terms of the behavior, either at the consumer level or among the brands and what their how their priorities shifted over the past 18 months that made a change in the Narvar product somehow that, that influenced the direction that you were going? For sure. I mean, um, a couple of things, contactless, deliveries you know that's something was very important pickup for that matter curbside pickup curbside returns you know those were not high on our priorities you know we want to make sure you know we offer and enable those experiences so that's one thing comes to mind second thing i would say communication now we always looked at communication all encompassing but the other piece that happened in last two years or so is general constraint in supply chain are two factors one is constraint in labor and 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 labor market that means limited resources in warehouses and for deliveries and second factor of constraint is as you mentioned briefly all the inventory issues where you know ports congested that means you don't have enough inventory what all, all that means is there are more exceptions where it is taking longer to fulfill an item, longer to deliver an item, longer to actually even have your shelf replenish. That means we have to build more and more use cases where 
we can now proactively inform and keep customer up to date for any exceptions that is happening in terms of orders they may have placed. So that's something that we were seeing exceptions, but that, that certainly swelled quite a bit in last two years. Now, the third year, we also see returns where you know, returns and exchanges where uh, was not top of mind for merchants and brands and retailers. But now, because there's a limited supply in the market and people who have bought products and if they want to change mind or they bought, you know, two uh, pair of jeans and one size up, one size down, they want to send anything back. So how do we offer more convenient choice and options for them to return their goods faster so that they can actually sell that back and they they are also very mindful of opportunity cost of not selling that merchandise in time so that's the third area that we are seeing more and more traction and more and more adoption in the market one of the challenges of being in the infrastructure space is when everything is going well nobody notices but then if something goes wrong <laughs> it becomes really obvious you know just like anyone at home if you've got power or wi-fi or water when it, everything's working fine you just take it for granted but if suddenly one of those things goes down it feels life or death and i'm curious where are the friction points now that that still remain in terms of making it so that those types of situations happen less and less often. What have we learned over the past 18 months that allow us to build systems that are going to be more flexible, more redundant, more, you know, adaptable to those changes that are that are seemingly happening with more frequency now? Yeah, I mean, the two things. And when you are building complex networks, it's a multi-dimensional equation that we are solving. On one hand, we are looking at how do we make it efficient and cost effective? So we are trying to keep it as lean and as possible. That inherently means there are not that many options to keep the redundancy in mind or, or have fault-tolerant systems. So that's one aspect of it because we are trying to keep it as lean and efficient as possible, both from a time and, and cost perspective. However, when there are issues and challenges, it has a whiplash effect or, or a cascading effect that breaks the entire network. And what tends to happen with that is now we're trying to put more fault-tolerant system and spend much more upfront in cost. Even if you look at what's happening from the weather perspective, where there are more and more outages, mm -hmm. and what people are doing is they're putting more uh, battery backup uh, in, in their homes and, and, and from those perspectives, that means is now you have all of a sudden increase your upfront cost uh, versus paying a little bit more for electricity and building that grid, which is a lot more resilient. So, I mean, those are the things that, you know, uh, we need to keep in mind. The problem with all these things is that every variable that we see, we try to optimize at the variable level, not at the entire network level. And hence, these things are so complex that is causing these issues and challenges because we're not taking that holistic picture or holistic network in mind. And all of these things are functional solutions. I'm curious if you have seen the communication style or the form or the maybe level of empathy between brands and their customers shift during this time. 
what they're saying as opposed to how how they're saying or how they're saying it as opposed to what they're saying. Uh, have you seen that change? Do you do you feel like maybe consumers are are appreciating the challenges of logistics now more than ever and and able to understand that? Yes and no. I mean, what I would say is that the brands are uh, genuinely trying to be more empathetic and and more appreciative of all the challenges that consumers are seeing. But there are only so many things they can practically do because of people can't come to offices or they're working from home or they have to take care of families. So, you know, there is that, you know, labor uh, and workforce uh, challenges and constraints right now. On the other hand, you know, of initially consumers were more patient and, and forgiving and the understanding that these things are happening. But as the pandemic goes on, consumers are also having that fatigue that, you know, mm-hmm. they are losing that patience as well. And this goes back to our initial conversation. They are reverting back to that really high consumer expectation. So it's challenges on both fronts. Yes, companies are doing their best, you know, to communicate uh, and somewhat trying to reset consumer expectations consumers initially were open to that but now they're reverting back to and uh, their you know their old expectation or renewed expectations of uh, where where things ought to be delivered so i think that it's, it's it's a hard thing to solve yeah i think the messaging aspect i <laughs> i'm laughing because i just today received a notification that my order had shipped for a product that i bought in june i think and it was a it was a side table piece of furniture but apparently it was i learned all about the manufacturing and uh you know shipping of that particular item because the um, brand was keeping me up to date with the situation but the product was stuck in vietnam and didn't make it all the way to the u.s for six months it it feels like we're kind of at another inflection point right now with covid where we're not exactly sure what's going to happen with some of these new variants and Brands have to make decisions about how they're going to build their infrastructure and their communications in a way that is uh, resilient going forward. What are some of the things that you're thinking about for the next four to five years or 10 years in terms of that horizon when it comes to I'm building my infrastructure for the future? What should that look like? That's a tough one. And what, what we'll see that really large and, and big players at the top, they will opt into more and more of a private network. And we, we are mm. seeing that even today, you know, Amazon is a great example. And not only, you know, you see more and more Amazon Prime vans in your neighborhood, but people who are in the trade and in the industry also know that they have Prime Air they have their own ships and, and that you're going to see more and more of that network. So big players will have uh, more of that privatized network. And by the way, that's not new. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, um, even Walmart built that transportation network besides Cisco, the food company, and the private, uh, you know, Walmart is the second largest private trucking company in the country. So we have seen those things before and we'll see more and more of that privatized network, whether it is air cargo, ports, you know, delivery and, and other things. So we'll see that. And then other a piece is that 
you know, looking at, you know, from the business continuity perspective, from the capacity manufacturing, not just reliant in Asia and Europe, but how do we think about bringing some of that uh, back in the U.S. as well in some limited fashion? So we will see more of those decisions coming out on both end of spectrum. One would be really large players and then small boutique up and coming companies have to be more creative in terms of how do they provide that high quality product and service, which means that will change the way we source, procure and manufacturing goods worldwide. Walmart is actually an amazing example in this case because they were one of the pioneers around VMI, which is essentially asking all of their vendors to make sure there's always just enough inventory in the the Walmart warehouses and stores to satisfy the consumer demand. I mean, one of the challenges with that, obviously, is that there was so many inventory shortages when that system broke down over the past 18 months. And people have been wondering whether we've skewed too far in that direction. I, I think of it kind of as a slider. I, I'm sure you've used Wealthfront or, or Betterment or these different types of robo-advisors. They give you a slider of what is the level of risk that you want in your portfolio, in your investment portfolio. And I think of it the same way when it comes to supply chain. Do you want to be on one end completely optimizing for just-in-time inventory, only having exactly what you need at the right moment in time? Or do you want to optimize on the other side of the spectrum, which is really investing in the lowest unit cost and the lowest risk and being able to satisfy the demand whenever it comes. And it seems like over the past, you know, before COVID, we had skewed all the way over to one end and maybe that slider is coming back down towards the middle somewhere. But we're seeing that too from a packaging supply chain, manufacturing supply chain, people having more redundancy having more backup solutions. And also, some of these changes are actually bringing us towards more sustainability, which is great, because while very efficient, some of the just in time is also a little less sustainable in in some ways. I think you're right. I mean, we, we need to think about these things, not only what is here and now, but building more resilient and more enduring systems and networks and products and experiences and services. So not only for product and, and uh, operations, but as you're indicating, uh, single-use or reuse products as well. Has circularity and, and circular economy type of thinking uh, started to be a topic at Narvar? I mean, because you're powering so much of the return infrastructure, I'm wondering if you're starting to see that business model or brands wanting to explore that more. Yeah, I think both, uh, both from a business model perspective, also evolving consumer behavior and, and expectations as well from both fronts is getting uh, more and more mainstream. And the way and I think about it, as we look at our lives, that is already happening in certain areas. You know, uh, we were talking about groceries, how we buy uh, produce. You know, we do have and our labels that give us that education and awareness what what is organic or not or GMO or non-GMO. That's been in a while and that is really, you know, important way for us to, you know, contribute or, or play, uh, play a role as a consumer. And I mean, that's also a fascinating part how Lumi with Lumi ID 
is going in that direction that if we are doing something in certain parts of our purchases and groceries, how do we create that education and awareness on other products as well? And that was very intriguing and fascinating uh, for me how Lumi took that approach. And now the question is that where do we go next? How do we create that education and awareness for consumer uh, in terms of general merchandise and, and shopping? And then that is awareness. And second is how do they, how can they act or take action on it? So it's going to be you know, a, a sustained effort uh, on brands as well as expect demanding those uh, capabilities from consumers' part. But then there is a responsibility for infrastructure and technology companies such as Narva to play a role there as well. So we are, you know, we've been thinking and, and ruminating on that for a good period of time since last year. And how do we now shape and influence the industry in the e-commerce industry? Because we have seen that in other places like food, for example. Yeah, we've been for lack of a better term, calling it the milkman model for a little while and exploring that idea of having uh, packaging that can make multiple ter- return trips or be washed and cleaned. There's a lot of interesting things developing in that area. It's still, even though it's an old idea, it's trying to be married with the current expectations that we've been talking about, which is, as a consumer, I want to have a lot of choice. I want to be able to get anything I want whenever I want, but then how do the products that are available to me also meet my values uh, when it comes to sustainability? And that that new layer is one that over the past four or five years started, when we started Lumia, it was probably the fourth or fifth priority that most brands had. And now I would say it's easily in the top uh, two, one or two. So that's really exciting. And I think that Lumia ID, which you brought up, was a product that I worked on very closely when we when we were building that. And actually, Narvar was a big inspiration to us in that process because uh, it was actually our first B2B2C product that was trying to take our knowledge about a, a piece of packaging and enable a brand to communicate that and answer the questions that they're increasingly seeing. The question of, is this sustainable? Where was this made? Is this a responsible product that I can feel good about? Uh, so I, I think that's one of probably the... I've been learning a lot of acronyms uh, at my time in at Narvar so far. <laughs> Things like WISMO, where is my order? I think there's probably a new question that is emerging, and I haven't figured out what the acronym for it is yet, but it's like, a, is this sustainable? And that question is maybe coming up both in the uh, consideration phase, but also at, at post-purchase when some someone has received something and they're trying to figure out, how do I dispose of it? How do I return it? How do I recycle it? And absolutely. I mean, so that's where, I mean, and you're right. So there are two components of it. One is, how can I learn more? Um, and second part is, you know, how can I take action on it, right? So uh, mm-hmm. we have to address both parts of it, continue to create that education and awareness with consumers and then how can they play their part so th- those are the things that you know we have top of mind as well and finding the right mechanisms right tooling where we can bring these things in the forefront both for brands and businesses as well as for consumers well i'm really excited about the next few months and years collaborating together 
there's so many opportunities. My my gears have been turning here for months, and I can't wait to start sharing those ideas with with the world over the the next few months. Any last words? But before we go, any <laughs> last thoughts that you wanted to throw out there to people? No, it's been uh, it's been uh, you know fascinating last six months to getting to know you and the Lumi team, and and uh, I share the same sentiment. Like you know, we are just getting started. Um, you know, if you look at Digital and commerce is still, depending on the category, 20%. In some cases, you mentioned grocery, you know, less than 10%. And so much more uh, that is needed here. And as, as we are building technology and solutions, as we and we keep these things in mind, you know, we're going to get better in delivering on um, expectations, both, you know, from a financial and, and uh, metrics perspective, as well as consumer behavior and expectations and experiences perspective. So really excited what is in, in front of us uh, with Lumi and Narvar uh, being together. Awesome. Well, thanks, Amit. And uh, hopefully we can check in again in, in six months or so and talk about what, what we've come up with uh, together. So see you then. Great. Now, thanks for having me.